Live. It's America's longest running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running, nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman. I hope all of you are having a great day and uh, hey, you're ready for another episode of Computer America. So today on the program, in the second part of the show, we will be doing, of course, computer and technology news, and that is where we talk about everything new, interesting, and newsworthy uh, involving technology, including uh, celebrating the fact that, hey, IRC, uh, uh, it's like internet relay chat, I believe. Uh, obviously, it came a little bit after you know I started chatting, but, uh, but you know, Computer America, for a number of years, ran a chat room based solely on IRC, so we feel, hey, celebrate its birthday turns 30 today and uh wow what a cool technology uh that including something about a fire department and verizon uh, no good there and uh, so much more so everyone computer and technology news in the second part but in the first part as we usually do we of course will be having uh, a guest and that guest will be none other than a company called spaces and this is going to be for all of you ar vr uh, aficionados because this is going to be, uh, you know, one of those, we talked a lot about yesterday, uh, yesterday we had a company on talking a lot about AR and VR as well. And, you know, we were talking about how the content that we, you know, we just didn't have the content to really push the idea of VR. Well, I believe this guest is going to really show us just what the technology can do. And here to talk with us is, uh, is Mr. Brad Herman. And hey, we'll get into that in just a moment. But one last thing, ComputerAmerica.com, that is where you'll find everything at our home, and yeah, you'll find a link to our guest website, any videos that we show, any uh, news articles we talk about, anything and everything will be in one place. Also, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech, and also be sure to check out the live video feed, which you can also find over at twitch.tv forward slash ComputerAmerica. Okay. So, all that being said, let's go ahead and jump right into our interview. And as I said before, Spaces, uh, you know, hey, tell us all about their, uh, you know, just what they've built over there. And uh, this is going to be a really good show for, yes, we're still a radio show, but for everyone out there watching, we're going to be showing, you know, some of the uh, pictures and videos and things like that. Uh, I think it's uh, something you really need to see to believe. So uh, joining us is once again, Mr. Brad Herman. He is the CTO and co-founder of Spaces. So Brad, welcome on to Computer America. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, a big shout out to actually to the, the birthday of Internet Relay Chat. As an old school uh, nerd and old school user of IRC, it actually it was some of the first chat rooms to help me get my first jobs in the industry. So very uh, cool. pr- pretty awesome day. Yeah, no, very, very cool. I, I, and, you know, honestly, like uh, 
I think the years that I still could have gotten into IRC, I was on uh, I was on like Battle.net and I was uh, you know using other forms. But uh, but no, IRC great technology. And hey, speaking of innovative technology, VR it's uh, it, it's all the you know hey uh, it's a thing. It, yeah yeah it, it, it's a thing. I was about to say it's everywhere, and uh, we all know that that it's not quite everywhere just yet. But, you know, it's something that I think everyone has in their hands through a smartphone or they've seen something. But uh, like I said, the content and the available content needs to really perk up. And again, I think that's something that you can really, you know, kind of share with us. So before we get started with all that, tell us about Spaces and tell us about Brad Herman. Uh, uh, how did, you know, give us some background on Spaces and were you always in technology? Uh, how did you find yourself working with the company? So Spaces at its foremost is an entertainment company. We're about giving people amazing experiences, letting them go anywhere and do anything. And we do that through location-based entertainment. We're, we're a place you actually go and experience stuff. And we use the latest and greatest in technology to help give you those experiences. So right now we have Terminator Salvation Battle for the Future. This is a VR experience. Um, we actually have you come into our locations. You suit up. You gear up. We put sensors on your hands, your feet. You put backpacks on. Uh, we put on wireless headsets. And then we actually send you into battle against Skynet. But not just alone. We actually send you in with your friends. And you're actually going to go really do this. We actually 3D scan your face. We then turn you into a Terminator, but with your face on it. And then you go and actually have this crazy social experience and have a lot of fun and hopefully save the world. Um, for me, the, the, you know, Space is a company that, that I co-founded uh, with uh, Shiraz Akmal two and a half years ago after our work at DreamWorks. So um, we led VR there, building innovative uh, location experiences for DreamWorks. And then for me personally, before that, uh, the visual effects industry. Working on movies like X-Men and Training Day and Pirates of the Caribbean and Transformers, using technology to make those cool images you see on the big screen, and now we take it and put it onto a screen that's on your face. No, and and of course I can see where a movie as you know kind of action packed and uh, you know high high pace as Terminator, I can see where it can translate very very well. And you know uh, before we uh, you know before we move any further, I I, had, I have to ask. Uh, and, and you know this may just be one of our past guests did something similar, but they had the franchise um, Aliens, and I'm kind of wondering if uh, if you've uh, you know ever worked with them, or is this some kind of trend that we're going to see kind of moving into the future, where you know these big you know these big you know kind of recognizable uh, action films are turned into VR experiences because they worked uh, again with Aliens, and uh, you know this this idea that you can push a you know this VR experience why are so many kind of i guess movie franchises being adapted to VR uh, what make what makes something uh you know easily or at least what makes something a good medium for VR so we know the guys at Fox and IP2 well they did a wonderful job adapting aliens and we're really excited to see this trend in turning amazing IP into great VR experiences you know, something for us that we love is that VR isn't just about, like, action movie experiences or one thing. That VR really actually allows you to create just about anything. It's really about creating a great experience for people. So using iconic IP is a great way to get people in the door. And then when they actually play, they see there's actually a lot more to it. There's narrative, there's story, there's action adventure. But we have people from ages 10 to 88 playing this game. Mm. And we see dramatically different experiences when we have a group of 13-year-olds come in and play they play very much like this is call of duty and then when we actually get all four of their moms in and the moms play they play the game a completely different way they're more <laughs> looking at the, the puzzles and how do we solve this as a team collaboratively and get it done and it turns out because we weight scores towards things like the puzzles they actually get a higher score than their kids <laughs> i bet that is something that they will definitely rub in their faces but 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 of course that's very interesting uh, and and you know I, I didn't mean to insinuate uh, that is strictly action movies, but obviously, you know, you weren't adapting the sound of music. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be Terminator and, you know, and these kinds of things. So we, we actually do have a musical in development. <laughs> to, to be to be 100% honest, we actually really? do have a music. We do. So um, 
and, and I know you bring up Sound of Sound. And by the way, Sound of Music's a great one. That's not the one we, we've got. We actually have an amazing Indian IP um, that, that's a Bollywood film. And the, the, the gameplay and the story and everything is actually expressed through dance. And your ability to actually like fully embody and do these dance moves is, it's, it's, is how you, you, you progress through it. I like I and, and and really I I found that very very interesting because uh, obviously this uh, you know what what you're creating here with you know Terminator Salvation and what you are doing with VR in general um, I feel like it's the very you know low hanging fruit is put uh, a VR headset on someone hand them some kind of uh, something to hold in their hand to work as kind of like a you know kind of like a laser gun or a regular gun whatever and just have them go through kind of a guided rail system and shoot things but that's that's a very obvious take on it and i guess there's a lot of different ways that you know creating a whole new reality around someone uh there's a lot of different ways that you can explore that technology so i'm glad to hear that it's not just uh shoot 'em ups uh you know again nothing wrong with that again it's uh very no. easily adapted but i'm glad that you're exploring as well you know we're, we're fans of a lot of genres of, of games and of films and of theme park rides and really, our company is made up about one-third of uh, employees from each of those disciplines. And we try to use the best in learnings from each of those things to help us create great experiences. So, you know, we've got an experience that we're building in China right now that is a Chinese romantic epic. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, it is a, a romantic drama. And it is, you know, being built with our, our theme park partner over there, who's one of the large, they're the um, third largest theme park operator in all of China. And, you know, their guests have very specific expectations for what they're looking for. They're not looking for guns. They're not looking for shooting. This is a, a beautiful romantic story being told through this medium that you interact with this beautiful world by exploring it. That is very, very interesting. And, and of course, uh, let's go ahead and kind of shift our focus back to, uh, of course, you know, your new VR experience here that you, uh, you know, with Terminator, but, and, uh, a romantic love story, I would have never seen it. So, uh, wow, you just blew my mind, but, uh, let's go ahead and talk about Terminator as well. Uh, you know, because that's what we have up on the screen and, uh, yeah, I, I think this is going to be, you know, a, a very, very exciting. Uh, so talk about this. Um, you said, you know, obviously put, uh, you, you put the player's faces on, on the AI and stuff like that. I mean, just tell us in general, uh, let's say someone new walks up to the booth and they say, okay, what now? Walk us through the experience. Absolutely. So, you know, very much like a theme park attraction, um, you know, you come in, we greet you, you come into the queue, we will then uh, scan your face and, and, and create your account and get you all set up on our system. And then you go to your pre-show briefing. So in the pre-show, you get your mission briefing. You learn what you're going to have to go, go do on, on this mission today with your squad. Um, we then bring you over into um, the, the stage where we transform the world, all the physical props and haptics and everything into this VR experience. You then go through the journey. Um, you hopefully succeed. Um, it, uh, you, you can succeed better than others. It depends on how well you do. There's lots of things to discover and figure out. Um, and then you, you've hopefully defeated Skynet and you find out at the end. Um, we then bring you back and then you are, are shown the, the scoreboard. We show you how did you do um, with your squad mates? Like, did you accomplish the goals? Who actually got the most points? Um, and then from there, you come out of VR and then you actually can see the, the total leaderboards. So this is the facility leaderboard for today, the facility leaderboard for all time. And we've already had numerous guests come back and play again because they saw their name get moved down on that big arcade scoreboard just a little bit, and they weren't okay with that. <laughs> I, trust me, I've, uh, I, I've been to arcades a lot, and I have one particular game that I completely dominated, and I took it as a, as a slight that, you know, someone did it slightly better than me. So um, I, I can completely see that. So in one aspect that I, I'm finding really uh, interesting, but, you know, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on, why did you feel the need to take someone's photo and play and place it on? And, and again, you know, this isn't uh, other people's AI as far as or you know uh, other characters within the game as far as I know. But you know, let's say you go in with a group of four and you scan four faces, they're going to be able to look around and 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 immediately identify who is whose avatar based on obviously the photo that you've taken and put into the game. Why did you feel the need to you know to do that? So you, you hit the nail on the head. It's really about being able to tell who everybody is and have that truly social experience as well as the video at the end. So 
key for us is, you know, we've played lots and lots of games. We've played lots and lots of VR games. And even when we do some other LBE ones, it's like, oh, you're the green player and I'm the blue player. Or maybe they put our name as like a giant piece of floating text over our head that doesn't really fit with the world. But it's tough to remember. Like you get five minutes in and you're like, who is green? Who's, who is that? <laughs> who are you? And you spend time like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Brad. I'm like, oh, hey, Brad. Like it turns out that when you scan someone's face and you put it on the character, you look over and like, oh, it's Brad. It's Ben. You know, yeah. it, it becomes very, very easy to, to, to know who everybody is. And it really adds to the social aspect. It doesn't take very long in the experience for you to kind of just forget and not even think about it. It's like, oh, it's just you recognize everybody and you interact with them in a whole different way when you implicitly know who that is. And then one of the things that we do that we love is that, you know, we live in a very social media based world today. Right. You know, it's not just about the experiences you have. It's about the experiences you share and how you share those experiences. So everyone that plays gets a free 15-second video that's like a cut-down version of parts of the experience that shows them and their friends in VR with their faces having this adventure. And then we have an additional two-minute video that is a like beautifully edited version of your experience, along with you talking and going through key moments of it so you can relive it. And you know stuff that's perfect for putting up on longer formats like on uh, Facebook and on YouTube. Yeah, I, and of course the medium that you're doing that in, uh, because I think we've all been to you know to an amusement park at some point, and if you're lucky, uh, more traditional like roller coasters and the like, they will have one picture at the very end or at a drop, and or you know other rides will have you know a couple pictures throughout. But you're able to obviously do you know much more than that. You know, ab absolutely. And what we love is when you get out of the experience. As you're exiting, you're presented, you get a chance to watch the video with your friends. You get to immediately watch the replay. And if you've ever played like online video games, you know, you get the play of the day. You get these like great moments at the end of a match where like the replay system shows you like the cool things that happened, whether it's in Mario Kart or Overwatch. We, we wanted to, to have that kind of sense of fun and excitement on the way out. And that's where this really comes in. And it's hilarious to see people react to, to what they were doing in the experience, to what they said in the experience, you know. Um, and we've really seen everything from a couple ballroom dancing as Terminators to um, we had a, a core group of like hardcore VR gamers looking at one of the puzzle elements, discussing with each other, trying to figure out how they pick it up because <laughs> they're so used to having a controller and clicking on things. They're just standing at the object, all staring at it like, I don't know what we do. And, and, and then finally, our game master just had to let them know, you just pick it up. And one of them reached <laughs> out and picked it up. And screamed because they actually picked up an object. And, and that's actually a, a very good point because not a lot of people have you know dove in headfirst into VR and made the investment because uh, traditionally the only way to get a VR experience was to you know fork over two thousand dollars for a computer and then another thousand dollars for the headset and sit in gear. And otherwise, obviously, not a lot of people are going to do that. Uh, I'm assuming a lot of your customers are first-time VR users. How well do they adapt to, uh, you know, to the thing? Obviously, there you said that there's some kind of orientation that uh, you know they get themselves familiar with the controls. Uh, but how how quickly do people pick it up? They pick it up incredibly quickly. It's funny. Um, first-time VR users are actually much more at home and easygoing in the experience than people who have like hardcore VR rigs at home. Because people who have hardcore VR rigs at home have learned all these instructions and all these things like don't walk around too much, don't turn around, mm -hmm. you know, don't do this, you know, don't go run over there because you'll, you know, trip on your coffee table. Right. Here, people who've never really had to worry about those rules or learning those things just like go in and go do it. And it's like, oh, I need to go over to that panel over there and press a button. So they just literally walk over and press the button. Someone who's used to like playing in their game is like, you know, at home is like looking for a joystick they can use to, to move themselves over there. Makes makes perfect sense. And this is also a good point to identify the difference between VR and I believe you call yourself location based VR. Uh, yes. Kind of describe, first of all, where are you? And second of all, uh, why the distinction? So we are at the amazing Irvine Spectrum Center uh, in Irvine, California. It is one of the premier destination malls in the U.S., um, it, it's a we're, we're lucky to be here. It's an amazing location with amazing people. And we're, we're open and selling tickets right now. Um, for us, 
the differences between location-based entertainment and at-home VR are actually pretty easy. We deliver an experience that you could never have at home. That the, the, the types of VR hardware, the types of technology of an equipment we are using, nobody has these things in their house. And even if you were to go to like the, well, there's like this one crazy guy who has a whole bunch of stuff, he might have one set of things. He certainly doesn't have four. Right. And he certainly doesn't have a giant stage with haptics and props and things that move. You know, that, that, that's where we, we deliver an experience. The, like, for instance, the, the haptic gun that we use costs as much as like a hardcore PC gaming rig. Like mm. we, we don't expect and it's built for location based entertainment. It, it, we don't expect people to have those at home. They're not marketed at home, but they're a heck of a lot of fun to use. So, and, and you can start to see where this can easily be compared to, like you said, uh, amusement parks and the like. How do you see the future of what you're doing uh, evolving? Is this going to be like uh, theme parks are going to have their own version of location-based VR? Or is location-based VR going to stick to kind of malls and little, like, uh, maybe like when the uh, escape room fad dies down, uh, location-based VR is going to take over all the escape rooms, and that's going to be that. Like, what is the future of location-based VR? Well, I think we're going to see an evolution over time as we see the convergence of AR and VR into our daily lives. As those things become more ubiquitous, we will see these you know, location centers be able to leverage potentially even personal devices people have, but augment them with additional pieces of technology that they don't have. So that's more like the five-year you know, kind of roadmap of where I think things are going overall. Mm-hmm. But realistically, I think we're already seeing several theme parks are adding VR attractions. Um, in China, there's entire VR parks that are open, and we're, we're building one ourselves right now. Um, I think what you'll see is just like, you know, currently parks and entertainment centers have diverse mixes of attractions, is that you will see just this is an additional thing added to that mix. You know, regular escape rooms are a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of them. Right. Um, and they've been around, you know, for, for a decade now, and they're, they're, they're just increasing in, in popularity. But what's cool is, you know, VR escape rooms is when you add those elements to things where you can use that same space, it's that same number of people, but do really fantastical storytelling and really fantastical puzzles, that would be tough to do in physical props. That would be tough to do at at a regular scale. So that's kind of where we see these things being additive, not, not, uh, I don't know a good word, but not, not replacing. Right. Right. And, and of course, obviously earlier we mentioned, uh, you know, kind of home base and how home users, you know, I, I, I guess it's very telling that you said that uh, people who have VR rigs at home, and trust me, they are the few, they are the proud, are still more than willing to come in and experience your VR because, hey, you know, they don't carry it around with them in their pocket. So uh, talk about in-home VR and uh, location-based VR. Do you see a future where maybe one replaces the other or maybe eventually they get combined where you have a singular game that you can play at home or at a location base? Um, how, how do you see the two mixing? Um, I see them mixing over the long term in terms of the convergence of devices and the convergence of, of media and entertainment brands. So I, I think you can look at like amazing things like Pokemon Go is a good example. Right. Pokemon, you know, Pokemon is a phenomenal, like traditional, like, you know, mobile game on, on, you know, on Nintendo DS and on Game Boy. But you have Pokemon Go, which is the mobile AR, like extended into the world version. I think you'll see more and more of these content franchises that will go from, you know, interconnected versions of experiences that are playable at home, that are playable on mobile devices, but are also playable in locations with big, large versions of them that you could never do at home that are like the super premium versions. So I I absolutely think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of convergence. And and I'm excited to to help uh, make that happen. Absolutely. And I can see that you're definitely doing that. And by the way, I was just looking at some of the promo uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, videos and, and pictures you have here. And I'm looking at the gear. The gear, obviously, uh, the headset's pretty standard. Uh, you know, it looks like you have, you know, some, some stuff that's a little bit more rate. Uh, little more rugged so it doesn't get you know broken but uh you have people wear vests and backpacks uh just real quick talk about what kind of gear uh you know people will actually be handling uh when they when they experience this whole thing so we actually put a uh, pretty powerful hp backpack on you with with a uh nvidia uh, 
literally the most powerful NVIDIA cards that you can get today uh, in a backpack. Um, you know, we, we do use Oculus as well as other technologies to deliver the experience. And then the um, trackers that you put on your hands and feet, we actually designed ourselves. So we actually designed and manufactured those, and those are custom. Um, and then we use a variety of basically custom 3D props and things that we sculpt and make and haptics to deliver on the final experience. Um, but from like a computer and technology standpoint, we're, we're very happy to have amazing partners that help us deliver this great content. Very, very nice. And hey, you know, sensors, they, uh, they're, they're certainly becoming affordable, but not even just affordable, but very, very precise. So I know that one big problem that VR has had in the past was, you know, you, you expect to do something very finite or something very uh, detailed. And if the sensors just aren't that capable of picking up those little movements, it's, uh, it, it can be very frustrating, which kind of leads me into my question. Uh, you know, you said that, uh, well, well, no, VR's been, uh, the big VR news has been around since like 2014, Oculus Rift and Facebook purchasing them for $3 billion. And then uh, I'd say 2015, everyone was like, VR, it's coming to, you know, it's coming to your home. It's going to be this big deal. We're in 20, you know, 2018, obviously. And VR, while not dead, is not currently, you know, I, I'm not currently petting my virtual dog as I throw my dog out the door. It's, it's still, uh, you know, a technology that is being adapted and, you know, in greater numbers, no, no doubt about it. But it's just now becoming something that people are really considering. Why is that? Um, uh, quite a few reasons, actually. Um, one is if you look at the general technology curves of how long it takes for, for adoption of devices, anything from like, you know, the VCR and the Walkman to television, you know, these things have a fairly standard pattern and VR is actually moving along on that pattern pretty well. Like what we're seeing now that's kind of amazing is in terms of at home VR, certainly for different classes of experience, the, the cost of devices coming down extraordinarily. Um, you know, Oculus makes the Go, which is a, a great headset. It, it is a mobile-based all-in-one headset, doesn't require your phone, and you can buy it at Best Buy, and it's $200. The, the quality in the screen of that is four times the resolution, four or five times the resolution of the original Oculus headset. Hmm. And, the, and that headset required a beefy computer and required a lot of, like, work and dev kit stuff. This is literally a headset that my parents walked into Best Buy and bought – and were able to immediately start watching Netflix in VR and CNN in VR. They were able to like um, become be virtually be at baseball games, and they're able to watch MLB games in 360 stereo, like they're sitting there in the stands. Like so, what we're seeing is as those prices fall, and as there is great content and experiences that are worth having, adoption curves will go up. That said there is always going to be a premium side of the market. You know, there's going to be people that want to do the super high-end games and super high-end experiences, right. or even beyond that, ones that, like us, that require a physical location and physical things to actually happen. So we're very, you know, happy about at-home VR starting to take off, and we certainly have, you know, we think it's going to continue to go well, but we also think that it dovetails nicely into us being able to give people amazing experiences here and then then people being sold on VR as like oh wow I do like VR this is going to be a thing and it didn't cost them that much they come here buy a ticket and have fun like okay I've seen you know where where the future is going and you know maybe they even go out and buy a headset there you go. No, and and that is something that every VR person and myself included, uh, I was lucky enough to try out the Vive back, you know, a couple of years ago, and you know, trust me, I I completely understand. It's one of those things that if you've never tried VR and you say, hey, you're gonna love this, they're gonna go, uh, you know, it's probably not for me. It's kind of goofy. It's whatever. But it's something that you really can't make a good decision on until you've at least put the headset on. And tried it. It's something that you that you really need to try. But like I said, it's just not something that's been very easily accessible, uh, uh, you know, up until this point. So I'm glad that exhibits like yours are certainly up and going. And speaking of Terminator Salvation, uh, obviously, you know, you guys are still going. You guys are you know doing well. I, and I guess, you know, talking about what is currently out is great. But also, 
talking about what you've learned and what you're going to take into the future, uh, what do you see, you know, what really, really worked for your current VR experience that you're hoping to, t- you know, carry over or improve in the next? So I would say um, the sense of wonderment and joy that you, you can't overlook the fact that like, especially for people for their first time in, there is a sense of amazement at just the smallest things in VR and not forgetting the fact that like, sometimes you want to just like overload and like, Oh, then you're going to go over here and do this and do this and do that. You have to add those still moments where they have a chance to appreciate just like this world they're in, this new body they're in, the character they've become. And, and we find it's really important to make sure that we give them those moments. Right. And, and I can completely understand that because uh, you know, if, if, if what you said so far uh, turns out to be true, they're gonna, you know, those cinematic experiences, they're gonna be able to replay those over and over again, uh, you know, by taking them home, saving a video of it, and they're gonna be able to, you know, kind of remember that. So, I, I'm really, really glad that uh, this has definitely worked out for you. We have like 30 seconds left, so I'll leave it to you. Uh, if people want to find out more information and how much is a ticket, you know, if they make it there in person, uh, how much, how much is it to actually experience this? So you can go to spaces.com. You can uh, find out more about the experience. You can book your tickets online. It's a $30 ticket for our Terminator attraction. And we have more attractions coming online here in Irvine soon. All right. And thank you very much for having me on the show. I really yeah. appreciate it. Our pleasure. And we'll be sure to, uh, you know, and we'll be sure to put links to everything in the show notes. Everyone, once again, spaces and have a good day. Everyone, we'll be right back. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare. What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at CompassionateCircle.BWAR.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour as we continue on here. And yeah, if you just missed our guest, we talked to a company called Spaces, Mr. Brad Ehrman. And uh, yeah, you know, it was, of course, a lot of fun to talk about... Well, location-based VR and their new experience, uh, Terminator. Let's see, Terminator Salvation. There we go. That's uh, that's the one. And yeah, hey, if you want to go check them out at the Irvine Spectrum Center, if you're out in California, then you can go check it out right now, and it's available. So, okay. All that being said, let's go ahead and jump into computer and technology news because the past couple of Wow, I'd say like a week. We haven't, uh, or even two weeks, we haven't really been able to get into computer and technology news. So this is going to give us a lot of time to uh, get into these stories. So here we go, computer and technology news. Let's get started. (laughs) 
All right. So uh, today, let's go ahead and get started with, uh, we have a number of stories that we really, really, really should get to. Let's go ahead and talk about this one. So this is causing, and sorry to use the pun, uh, kind of a PR fire as opposed to a regular fire. So you may have heard about this one. Uh, there's been a couple back and forths, and so far, uh, yeah, this one isn't turning out too well for Verizon. So you may have run into this yourself if you are a Verizon customer. What happens when you use too much data? Well, they throttle you. And Verizon, with their throttling of unlimited data, is nothing new. It's uh, it's something that they are well, uh, you know, well documented doing, in that they will sell you unlimited plans, and then as soon as you reach a limit within that unlimited, they won't cut you off completely. They won't make you go cold turkey off your data, but instead of getting oh, I don't know, uh, 15, 20, 50 megabytes per second, so that you can you know adequately stream your movie or uh, browse, you know, browse the internet or, you know, play that app or download those games. Instead of cutting you off cold turkey, your download is going to go from 50 to maybe, you know, 52 kilobytes. Like it will be throttled to the point of uselessness. But you'll still have data, just a very minute amount of it. Well, that practice, uh, again, it happens. Uh, it's not, we're not talking about, you know, whether or, not, whether or not they do it. But now what happened here is the fact that they did it and then they did it to the wrong customer. So this is the, let's see, I believe it's called, uh, let's see. Uh, so it's a fire department. And we'll get the exact fire department out in California. If you have been living under a rock, uh, hopefully it's not in California because that place is on fire. Uh, there are fires all throughout the West. And it's a horrible situation. Really, uh, you know, really unfortunate when people lose their homes and lives. And it's, you know, just not something you really want to happen. And then at the same time, you don't want it to happen when a company plays, uh, you know, kind of, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge at you. And in times of emergency, fire departments get a lot more phone calls than they normally would. Uh, you know, something that may work for, you know, kind of steady times does not always work for, for times when, Hey, everything is on fire. So that's why we have now, uh, this story about a fire department whose data was throttled by Verizon while it was fighting California's largest ever wildfire has rejected Verizon's claims that the throttling was just a customer service error and had nothing to do with net neutrality, which we talked about net neutrality. We have a couple of shows dedicated entirely to net neutrality, if you feel like going back. Uh, but essentially why they're saying this is that... Uh, the idea that you can throttle, uh, that carriers can decide which data goes through, you know, even though there's no kind of actual throttling, it's all artificial, and that they can then charge more for you because you're using more of it. Uh, that was one of the key tenets of net neutrality. And yeah, they said that the throttling has everything to do with net neutrality. That is what a Santa Clara County official said. So Verizon yesterday acknowledged that it shouldn't have continued throttling Santa Clara County Fire Department unlimited data service while the department was battling the Mondesino Complex fire. So Verizon said that the department had chosen an unlimited plan that gets throttled to speeds of, here we go, I said 52, I apologize, uh, they would never do something so atrocious. It's uh, It's 200 kilobits per second. So not 52, 200, my bad. Or 600 kilobits per second after using 25 gigs a month, but that Verizon failed to follow its policy of removing data speeds when contacted in emergency situations. And this was a customer support mistake, they said. A customer support mistake. Well, you can see where things really went off the rails when uh, emergency services had to essentially stop taking information because they just couldn't receive information because the data speeds were too slow. You can start to see some of the loopholes in our current infrastructure. 
So the Santa, the Santa Clara County uh, disputed Verizon's characterization of the problem in a press release last night, saying that Verizon throttling has everything to do with net neutrality. It shows that the ISPs will act in their own economic interest, even at the expense of public safety. And yeah, and you know uh, the quote continues saying that that is exactly what the current administration uh, repeal of net neutrality allows and encourages. So. Yeah, that being said, they are among two dozen local or state government agencies that sued the FCC in a bid to overturn the repeal of net neutrality. And um, yeah, you know, the article goes on for a bit talking about, uh, you know, the connection between the two. But because we didn't touch on it yesterday and we really, really should, they said that, oh, and by the way, another key part here was that they were more than willing to lift the throttling of the fire department if they were to pay if they were upgrade from a three uh from a 38 dollar plan to a hundred dollar plan and uh and then they would have had to pay 20 gigabytes per second i'm sorry uh, they would have to pay for 20 gigs and then after 20 gigs they would have had to pay eight gigs per gigabyte after so essentially they did to the fire department what they did to every consumer out there they said, we know that you're currently on an unlimited plan, but it's not as unlimited as our currently limited tier plans for much, much more money. And I know that's for, you think an organization as large as a fire station, you don't think that, you know, maybe $60 would be that big of a deal. But think of a situation that we currently have where $60 and then a gig after every single time, and they're sending receiving uh phone calls and data and pictures and video and all kinds of information that could skyrocket the amount that these places have to actually pay especially in times of emergency you know when you really don't have time to sit down go into your account and add credit onto your verizon account when you're trying to save people's well homes and and lives so all of that has been covered, all of that has been said, and I just really wanted to highlight it here that, um, you know, it's a, it's an unfortunate situation, and they're and for them saying it was a customer support mistake, uh, you're darn tootin' it was, and this should never happen, especially in circumstances like this, but it should never happen to anyone, regardless if they're a fire department or a private individual. If you sell someone an unlimited contract and then you throttle them, to 200 kilobits per second how how is that even fair so okay so with that being said let's go ahead and go into some of these other stories and way at the beginning of the program if you recall we had a birthday today not mine not craig's not anyone else here at the office but uh no instead today's birthday belongs to the one the only the internet, uh, let's see, the, the, yeah, the internet relay chat, I believe, let's see, yeah, the internet relay chat, yes, see, I was wondering about that, the internet relay chat, which I know is still bustling, I know that a number of our listeners still are on it, we have avid users, uh, Computer America has deviated away from IRC for a while now, but, uh, that no less, uh, you know, we don't think anything less of what IRC has done for the world. So with that being said, IRC turns 30 years old today. And it was developed at the, uh, at the University of Ula or Ulu, O-U-L-U. And they said that uh, it was born in the Department of Information Processing Science, uh, Science in the University of Ula or Ulu 30 years ago. And they said that uh, the developer developed the internet chat system back in 1988 in addition to a summer job. And today, people are, of course, still using IRC. Uh, computer science students uh, and, you know, a, a certain computer science student uses IRC every single day. Uh, mostly he chats about everyday topics and occurrences like lunch dates and news of the day, saying that there's a tremendous amount of channels in IRC and it's easy to create more. For, exa uh, for example, events and hobbies can have their own channels. And yeah, you know, that's one thing that led to 
uh, you know, the diversity that the IRC has shown was that it wasn't simply curated to a certain number of chat rooms like AIM or something else. No, anyone can kind of create their own space, host their own little server, and have hundreds or thousands of people join it, watch it, join the conversation. And it was super versatile. It was easy. And, you know, it's really held itself through the ages. So in a world where technology, you know, you think about what technology is still in use today, 30 years later, there's very few that actually stood the test of time because technology Technology is not supposed to stand the test of time. Things are supposed to get better, faster, smaller, more convenient, but IRC continues to plug ahead. So there you go. Yeah, IRC, happy birthday. And here's the 30 more. I don't see it going away anytime soon. So, okay. So there's that one. Let's, uh, just a quick happy birthday shout out. Let's talk about... Okay, how about some justice served? I like this one. So, the darknet. We've talked about it before. What is the darknet? Simply, websites that are not uh, trolled by Google or any other search engine. Websites that don't allow, uh, you know, essentially search engines or, uh, or ISPs to, or not ISPs, or domain uh, services to direct traffic to them. They're essentially IP addresses that you, if you know how to get into them through either the Tor network or, you know, the Onion network, you or Tor browser, Onion network, then you are able to get onto these websites and, you know, they're not all bad. Some of them are, of course, you know, just people's personal websites. They, uh, you know, just websites that they just don't want people to have access to. But in other cases, the darknet, because it's a tool, it's a piece of technology and just like anything else that can cause damage, uh, you know, a brick is a brick, but if you whack someone over the side of the head with it, a brick suddenly becomes a very dangerous object. Uh, same thing with, with, the dark, with the dark web and the dark net. And one thing that people have found a home in doing on the dark web is unfortunately selling drugs. It's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, not something obviously that we advocate and although we do have to point out that it does happen it's unfortunate and we definitely don't like it but we do like it when these matters get taken care of so here we have it this is a rare win from the department of justice and i'm saying that because it's it's really hard to track down what's going on on the darknet and actually pin down uh you know, these providers, because whoever created the, you know, the server could be anywhere and they could, you know, there's a lot of ways to hide their footprints. Essentially, it's not easy to do what they just did. So the couple behind a prolific dark net fentanyl sales was busted by the DOJ. And they called it Operation Darkness Falls, and it resulted in arrests, charges and guilty pleas of the dealer. So they said that they announced on Wednesday that in recent months, they have arrested, charged, and of course, received guilty pleas from suspects. Here we go. Suspects in numerous new drug cases stemming from dark websites. And they said that the most prominent case were uh, two individuals who, uh, I'm I'm sorry, a, uh, a possibly married couple from San Antonio, Texas, that jointly operated under the name MH4Life. And according to federal prosecutors, the two suspects were the most prolific dark net fentanyl vendor in the United States and the fourth most prolific in the world. That's how crazy this is. Just a random couple in California. Uh, well, uh, not California. Uh, in Texas. Just a random couple in Texas are the fourth largest fentanyl distributor in the world. That's crazy to me. So, of course, they said that last year, the fentanyl can be 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine, and it is often mixed with other forms of drugs. And they said that it will, of course, be legally prescribed for pain relief and can be highly addictive. So you don't want this just, you know, 
flowing freely into the market, it can and has caused a lot of problems. So prosecutors say that the that the Rob, Roberts duo, who are of course the two charged here, had multiple accounts across several sites, including Dream Market, Silk Road, Alpha Bay, Darknet, Heroes League, Nucleus, and more. And over a year has passed since Alpha Bay, one of the largest online drug websites, was seized and shuttered. So under the so under the Department of Justice, they have gone hard on the drug dealers of the dark web. And, of course, they have indicted two Chinese nationals in October 2017. <sighs> and there you have it. That's another reason why it's not easy to do. is because, let's say that they have identified two, you know, two Chinese individuals. The odds that they're actually going to be able to get the Chinese government to send over their citizens to be prosecuted in the United States for something that they did online the chances are slim to none that they're actually going to be able to do this. So, yeah, not easy. So you got to take your wins where you can, and this is awesome. So they said that uh, these traffickers allegedly manufactured uh, in China more than 250 types of synthetic drugs, including synthetic opioids and deadly fentanyl, uh, and, yeah, and deadly fentanyl that they distributed in the United States and around the world. Yep. So using an elaborate system of shell companies, they, uh, they allegedly shipped synthetic opioids to locations in more than 25 countries and 37 U.S. states, including Ohio. The man who was charged in serving the American reshipper has already been arrested. He was caught while trying to flee the country and has pled guilty. So, you know, and, and that's one of the scariest parts is that the drug trade doesn't even need that many people. It only requires a few, and then you, of course, need the manufacturers and, uh, and of course, the users. But, you know, it, it, it takes one big manufacturing operation and just a couple middlemen to get the shipping and coordination down. And then a lot of people are affected over a large area, even around the world. So, hey, congratulations to the DOJ for shutting down a dark web seller. Not very often it happens, and uh, pretty darn cool. So, let's see. Let's go from that one. We have time to do maybe two more stories. Let's discuss... All right, let's discuss this one. So, you know how we just talked about IRC? Well, IRC is used in particular by a very sp uh, specific community, and that would be the Linux community. They love it. It's a very uh, simple program to be able to talk to their friends on, and it works very, very nicely with minimal system settings. Well, looks like, speaking of Linux, there's another thing coming to the platform and very, ap and very applicable, 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 about, um, yeah, about Linux, where Valve and their Steam Play We'll use Vulkan to bring more Windows games to Linux. So Valve announced today a beta of Steam Play, which is a new compatibility layer for Linux to provide compatibility with a wide range of Windows only games. And we've been tracking Valve's efforts to boost Linux gaming for a number of years. And as of a few months ago, there's things to, seem to have gone quiet, which I think a lot of people would agree. There was a time that uh, that uh, Gaben was uh, he was developing these things called the Steam boxes that were running off of a variant of Linux, and he made a big deal that anything that was playable on Windows would be playable on Linux. And trust me, the Linux community they love that because that means more things that they can do, and means more games. They get to shake that idea that uh, Linux is an underperforming uh, system. And rather, it, uh, it can do anything anyone else can. Well, it took another leap forward in that regard, where last week it became clear that something was afoot for Linux gaming. The announcement today spells out in full that the company, uh, what the company has developed, where at its heart, it's a customized, modified, modified version of the, of the Wine Windows on Linux compatibility layer named Proton. So Wine is, uh, 
let's see, not a Windows emulator or whatever it's called. Uh, whatever. Wine is essentially you can run an instance of Windows within Linux to be able to run anything you want within Linux. It's kind of like that little barrier. So they said that the compatibility with Direct3D graphics is provided by VKD3D, and which is an implementation of Direct3D12 that uses Vulkan for high performance and Vulkan implementation of Direct3D11. So to, to improve the broader gaming experience, Valve said that full-screen graphics, multi-threading, gamepad support have all received attention, which is great. So, once Steam Play is out of beta, developers of Windows games will be able to mark their games as being Steam Play compatible and will be offered for sale to Linux users. Valve has already tested and validated more than two dozen traditional VR games, including Doom, which include the original in 2016, and 2017, which is the VR version, Near uh, Automata, and Quake. While support for other games is being worked on, Steam Play testers can toggle an override switch, which will allow you to download games on Steam systems, even though they are not flagged. So, pretty cool. It means, essentially, Steam Play is another step forward that if you want to play something on Linux, you can go into Steam and you can download a game from Steam to be able to play on your Linux machine. It's... Uh, it's a it's a really good thing. It really is because you know Steam or I'm sorry Linux as much as you know as much as we love you as much as we uh you know dedicate a show every month to you uh your game selection needs a lot of work when compared to Windows. So hopefully this uh this closes that gap. All right. There you have that. Let's see let's see let's, see. let's go ahead and discuss Ah, man, there are, there are a couple good ones, and we don't have time for one more. How about this one? Yeah. Christie. Uh, uh, Christie's, they're an auction house, I believe, in New York. They sell a lot of different, uh, you know, very interesting items. Like, if the elephant man's bones are going to go on sale again, it's going to be at Christie's. So, well, what does Christie's have this time that makes it relevant for us here on Computer America? And that would be an AI-generated art. I guess, art. Painting. There we go. Not just an art, but also a painting. And they said that in October, Christie's Print and Multiples Art Auction will include a portrait of a man named Edmund, uh, Edmund de Bellamy. One of 11 portraits of the Bellamy family, and the man is depicted in a dark coat with a white collar and his facial features indistinct. Blank areas around the work edges suggest that it is unfinished, and to many, the work may appear right at home at an auction house such as Christie's. But Edmund is, is not real. In fact, the entire Bellamy family is a work of fiction, and the, and the portraits weren't painted by a human, but by artificial intelligence. And for anyone out there watching the video portion, uh, you can of course see the picture there. It's, uh, yeah, looks like an unfinished painting. Not the best, but hey, not bad for a computer. So they said that when the piece goes up for auction, Chrissy's will become the first auction house to sell a work of art created by artificial intelligence. And they said that the Bellamy portraits were developed by a group called Obvious and were created by Generative ad uh, Adversarial Networks, which is a type of algorithm known as GANs. So the Obvious artist fed the system around 15,000 portraits created between the 14th and 20th century, and that the discriminator part of the algorithm was then tasked with differentiating between human-made and AI-made, saying that the aim is to fool the discriminator into, of course, thinking that the new images are real-life portraits. And then we have a result. So what they did was that, you know, even before they painted, the AI would generate, after scanning 15,000 portraits, they would generate a completely different, unique portrait. And then it would use its, you know, the same system would then use its 
discriminator as they called it, but essentially say, is this real or is this fake? And every time it returned fake, they would go back and run it again so that it would try to spit out a new realistic looking portrait and then it would come back and it would be fake over and over again, probably millions of times before you end up with this result of this painting, which is something that even itself could not tell the difference between, well, what is real and what is fake. So they're hoping to sell for somewhere between 7,000 and 10,000 euro, or about 8,000 to about $12,000. And yeah, I guess the future where we thought that artists were not gonna be replaced by AI, that may be a work of fiction too. So everyone, thank you for joining us here on Computer America. Music means that we are just about done for today. And be sure to catch us here tomorrow, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, as we talk to a company called Orcan. Orcan. And this is a company that does, obviously, cam uh, cameras. And let me see if we can get a better idea. So, oh, this is going to be uh, cameras for your glasses or your eyes or personal recorders. It's going to be pretty cool. So, everyone, tune in. And until next time, have a great day. Again, thank you to our guest, Spaces, for coming on. If you miss any part, check out the podcast. And, hey, be sure to tune in tomorrow. Everyone, have a great day. Bye-bye.